back to Galatians uh, 4. Uh, we, I ended this morning with that verse, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, I, I want to cite the verse, and then we'll, we'll work our way back to the verse, uh, but, but this is in a larger context. And to me, particularly, it's particularly relevant in our day, and people would say, well, you know, not, you know Paul's primarily dealing in Galatians with uh, the situation where these people had come to Christ by grace through faith, and then you had uh, what were called sometimes the Judaizers that may have even been well-meaning well Christian uh, Messianic or Christian Jews. Uh, but, but they only had one, they really only had one paradigm to think in terms of faithfulness to God, and that was the Old Testament law. So I, I sympathize with them a little bit uh, in that they were inclined to bring all the law to bear in their own Christian life. Uh, the problem was they were, they were doing that to the Gentiles as well. And one of the controversies Paul was dealing with was that these people would come to these new Gentile converts and begin to, uh, begin to suggest to them or imply to them uh, adherence to some law, particularly circumcision was one. Uh, but others, they were observing certain days and different things, and they were introducing, as it were, to, the, to their faith this new idea about adherence to the law. Uh, you see that most, most directly uh, in chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 11, and then beyond that, he begins to defend this, uh, this idea of uh, salvation by grace through faith or justification as well. I want to look at a few of those verses in chapter 3 and then work our way to the text that we read just a moment ago. So in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, um, notice here this, this is his argument in regards to, to how they were imposing now the law on these who had come to faith. But in verses 1 and 2 he says to them, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly poured portrayed as crucified. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Now, here's his first argument. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing the hearing with faith? So verse three says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the spirit? So his first argument here, uh, and stay with me because this is relevant to what to chapter four, verse four through seven. But his first argument here is to remind them the the spirit. Did you receive now the spirit, the feeling and the indwelling Holy Spirit by the works of the law? <clears throat> uh, essentially, you would be saying, uh, did you by your adherence and observance of the law provoke or provide for uh, the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit or were you filled by the Holy Spirit in believing through faith? And so that's his first argument. So don't, 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 ra don't raise law to this level. Be reminded that you were saved, justified. The Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in you prior, prior to any law keeping. 
In fact, you didn't keep the law up to a certain point and finally find some success and then that releases the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you. He's, that's his question to them. That's his first argument. The obvious answer is no. They did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law. They received the Spirit by faith. Uh, verse 3, you see that as well, but by the Spirit, uh, he says, essentially, you begin, should you now, without the Spirit and by law, perfect your flesh? That's essentially what he's saying. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And, and I think he means there by, by your fleshly working of the law. Uh, let me just insert here. We might think it's irrelevant to us because we're not, we're not like the Jews and we're not struggling with Old Testament law. <clears throat> but but it, is, it has direct application because this is a situation where they came to faith and filled with the Spirit by faith. And then immediately they're, they're now thinking in terms of they're going to bring law of adherence in as a means now to perfect the flesh or for sanctification. So are we saved by grace through faith? And then the sanctification is according to the flesh, according to law keeping. That's his second argument. So in other words, are you, were you born again? Are you, are you justified by the works of the law? No. Well then, if you, if you began by the spirit and we're filled with the Holy Spirit there, are you, after that experience, are you then being sanctified by the works of the law? And the answer is no, no. And I think that's relevant for us because I, I meet a lot of people who, who I think are giving, bearing testimony. They came to faith by, uh, to, to, uh, to salvation, to justification by faith through grace. And then almost immediately into that relationship, they began to become obsessed with, with law keeping as it were, with their works. I got to do this. I got to be at church three times a week. I got to do my evangelism. I got I to gotta do all these things. And, and they, start, they start working in that way. And then somewhere along the way, it's like they shifted over. Now, by the works, by their works, they're achieving or trying to achieve acceptance with God. Now, most of them wouldn't admit that. If you said, well, are you trying to, you trying to gain acceptance with God by doing that? Oh, no, 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 no. But in, in a subtle sort of sneaky way, it can creep into our hearts that, yes, we are saved by grace. We are justified by grace through faith. But then once we're saved, we're, we're working and we're working to achieve acceptance or a greater acceptance with God. You, let me just say tonight, you will find no greater acceptance with God than in union with Christ. Uh, he, he accepts you because you are robed with Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account and that's the basis of your acceptance, not your working out of the law. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't be striving for obedience and learning the scriptures and, and conforming our lives and willfully and actively participating in that, but not as a means of gaining acceptance, but as a fruit of that acceptance. That's very different. And that's what Paul was arguing and pushing back against. These believers had come to Christ and he's so upset about that. He says things like, who has bewitched you? Somebody's cast a spell on you. I mean, you were brought to faith by grace and the spirit came to dwell with you by grace and through faith. Why are you now departing from that and, and listening to those who would compel you to be circumcised or to fulfill some law? It, you're, you're moving away from the grace by which you were saved. And so his second argument is, did you receive the spirit 
<clears throat> you received the spirit by grace through faith, but now are you perfecting the flesh by anything other than that same grace? Uh, let me just one more point on this, kind of a point of uh, personal experience. <clears throat> I learned uh, early in my Christian life that my conformity to Christ <clears throat> was produced much more quickly and, and without as much resistance when my focus and devotion was on the cross and on the Christ of the cross. In other words, if I could become obsessed and devoted and, and beholding the glory of Christ upon the cross and the sacrifice of Christ, it was almost like he was automatically by that, by that view producing in my outward life this more, uh, this more and more conformity to the truths of God's word, to the word of God and, and even to the moral law of God. But the moment I looked away from the cross and began to devote my own strength to adhering to the law, I began to, I began to fall away from the law. In other words, I realized I was doing this, but my heart is not in this, in which made a mockery of the, of the law itself. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to pre preserve these Galatians from having that experience. He doesn't want them moving away from this grace. In Galatians 3, 5, a third argument here is uh, the miracles. Apparently there, the Lord continued to work miracles. Verse four, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. And then he asked him, so then does he, I think he means Christ there, who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I mean, you think about Christ in his earthly ministry when he was performing miracles, uh, he, it was by the hearing of faith. As, it, as you have believed, let it be unto you. Often Jesus would commend their faith. Uh, as, it, as, as your faith is, so let it be. So Jesus was among them working miracles, not by adherence to the law, and not even by uh, pushing them to adhere to the law. It was the miracle brought about by faith. And so there's faith working now, and he who is working miracles among you, is he doing it by the works of the law, or is he doing it by the hearing of faith? So that's his third argument to these Galatians. Uh, I, I was thinking about this. This really had to come up, come up against them in regards to how they were adhering to those who were bringing this idea of law and grace into their minds. And I think in many ways they'd embraced them. And like I said, I'm not faulting them so much because uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noble impulse. They wanted to be obedient. And so they were particularly vulnerable to someone who would come along and say, well, if you want to be obedient, really obedient, I, I know you've been saved by grace through faith and that's justification. But in regards to your sanctification and obedience, you need to receive circumcision. After all, that's God's token of the covenant. And so they would say things like that. And, the, and so these Gentiles would see, they would reason that out and be compelled to, to, to be moved to that direction. Well, all, all of a sudden now they're law adherence and they're moving away from the grace and from the faith by which they were justified. So his first argument again is the indwelling spirit came to them not by the works of the law, but by faith. In, in verse three, the spirit uh, that they began with, the feeling of the Holy Spirit upon their believing, um, they began that way and then they were departing and been sanctifying their own flesh by the power of their obedience in the law. And that was a challenge to them as well. Why would you begin with the spirit and then leave off of the spirit and then the third of the miracles that were performing, being performed among them were 
brought about by faith and not by works of the law. In chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, I think his other argument here is the righteousness uh, reckoned by the works of the law or was it reckoned by faith? These are interesting verses, but he says, even so Abraham believed God, believed God and it was reckoned to him or accounted to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith, not of the works of the law. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Uh, You pick up in 10 and 14 later, but I think his emphasis there uh, to them, his argument there is that the righteousness uh, that, that Abraham enjoyed was an imputed righteousness that came about based upon the belief. In other words, it was his believing is what it was reckoned to him as righteousness, not his adherence to law. In fact, the law wasn't even in existence uh, in, in its formal sense whenever Abraham believed. And so he's, he's, he's making the argument that your righteousness, Gentiles, is also not going to come about by law keeping or adherence to the law. It's going to come about by believing by faith, by grace. So he's pushing back again. In verses 10 through 14, uh, he really poses this question, have you kept the law perfectly so as to remove the curse uh, declared upon those who have not? You see that in verse 10, he says, for as many, and this is sobering, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For, why you say, why you say, are they under a curse? You would think it'd be a blessed condition. He says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So, so he's also, he's, he's compelling now. You, you don't want to move away from this grace. In fact, if you move back towards this law adherence as a means of justification, what you're going to find out quickly is you're, to, you're, you're moving yourself from this blessed state back into this cursed state. And you are obligated now, if you're going to be a law adherent, to obey it every single jot and tittle of the law. You are obligated to obey the entirety of the law to perfection. And so he's saying to the, these Galatians, is that what you want? Is that what you want? I've already established that you are the heirs of the descendants of Abraham and share the righteousness of Abraham when you exercise the faith of Abraham. But are you preferring law keeping over that free gift of grace in believing? If you are, then you're removing yourself from grace and you're subjecting yourself now to the curse which is upon the law. In other words, you are obligated if you're going to be a law keeper to keep it perfectly, perfectly. To me, that's a pretty convincing argument there. Uh, none of us have kept that law perfectly, nor could we, nor did they. And nor were the Jews who were compelling them to be circumcised. In chapter 3, verse 15 through 18, uh, essentially this, does the law supersede then the covenant <clears throat> a promise made to Abraham? Really interesting verses here as well. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet even when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds condition to it. And so he's bringing this down on a, on a human level. 
If I enter into a contract with you, <clears throat> we both signed the contract. There is a covenant, uh, a covenant relationship we have. Once it's ratified or affirmed, then none of us can add to that. Nobody can set it aside. It's valid. It's in operation and no one can amend it whatsoever without the consent of both parties in the, in the human sense. So he's using this human example. Now, verse 16, he's going to make his application. Now then, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Notice here, and don't overlook this, he does not say, and to seeds as referring to many. So the promise is not to many, it is to one. Your seed, through your seed, the nations will be blessed. So the promise, uh, the promise made to Abraham is not to many, it is to one. So essentially the promise is made to the seed singular of Abraham. Anybody want to tell me who that is? Christ. So the promise is made to Christ. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is, Paul answers, Christ. So the promises God made to Abraham in regards to that seed were made essentially to Christ. And in believing, uh, God imputed righteousness to Abraham. I'm convinced, I've told you this before, but uh, God preached the gospel in many ways, I think, to Abraham. One of the main ways was when he took his son up to the altar and, and he says to his son before they go, God will provide himself a lamb because the son was saying, where's the lamb? We got the fire, we got the, we got the wood, we got everything we need to offer sacrifices on the mountain. Father, where is the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide himself a lamb. Well, if you read the narrative, he never does. Uh, he gives him a ram. And I think the gospel was inherent in that. I'm not giving you the lamb because the lamb is yet to come. Isaac gets a ram. Abraham's seed, the many who will be blessed get the lamb. And so he heard the gospel that way as well. So Paul is defending this singular seed who is Christ. Now he, now he explains to us in verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So the law has a purpose. He's going to get into that. The law had a purpose in being introduced, but it was not to supersede the, the promise made to Abraham. That was the covenant that was driving this. The law has its place. It has a very critical and important place, but is, but is not a substitute for the prior covenant because you can't add to it and you can't set it aside. It's a covenant. That's what he's just said. So however you view the law, Galatians and those Judaizers, however you view the law, it can't become a substitute for the promise, which was righteousness imputed upon belief. You see what he's saying here? That is so critical. And to me, that's exactly what happens if we come to faith in Christ and we immediately begin to work the works of the law as a means to gain acceptance to Christ. We're substituting a law covenant, which is cursed because you have to abide by every single aspect of the law. We're putting it in the place of the covenant that was made with Abraham before that. We're saying it's a better covenant of acceptance for me to keep the law or to me to be about law keeping as a means of acceptance with God. Verse 18, he continues, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. 
but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So you see where I'm I'm getting your substituting law now for the promise. If it came by, if if the promise came by law adherence to the law, then God gave Abraham the promise under a different guise. And why would he give us the promise under a different context than he did Abraham? If indeed we are to be the descendants of Abraham. And now he's going to explain to us, verse 19, why the law then? Why the law then? And I think this is good for Christians. What do we, what do we do with it? How do we view the law? I, let me say, I do think for the Christian, the law is, uh, is, is helpful. It's, it's no longer, we're no longer under its curse because we're not obliged for our acceptance to God to keep the law without failing. But the law can also be instructive in regards to the holy character and nature of God, the expectations of a holy God. We learn about the holiness of God and the expectations of God upon his people through the moral law. We don't do the sacrificial and the ceremonial law, but we do, we do still take reference to the moral law of God. But he gives another reason here. Why the law then? It was the added, it was brought in because of transgressions. Notice the divine origination of the law as well, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, singular Christ, would come to whom the promise had been made. So God, God makes the promise in regards to this seed And through that seed, all the nations will be blessed. Through Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. So the law came in because transgressions were increasing. So the law came in to to push back, as it were, to restrain the transgressions of the people while, while we were awaiting the seed to arrive to whom the promises had been made. Uh, That was really striking to me this week because I'm thinking, wait a minute, (laughs) they're not made to me not apart from Christ. They're not made to you, not apart from Christ. They're made to Christ. All the nations will be blessed through your seed, through Jesus. The blessings of the nations, including you and I, are are the fulfillment of promises made to the seed who is Christ by the Father. What you enjoy today is the blessings deserved and and covenanted by the Father to send to the Son, not blessings that are a result of your having achieved some satisfactory acceptance with God. You see what I'm saying? That is crucial. That is crucial because if I'm having problems in my life and I've attached my blessings to my adherence to the law and my performance of all these things, then the day that I'm not blessed, I'm feeling like I'm completely failed God. Now, I'm not saying that God does, that those blessings don't come coinciding with our obedience with him, but our obedience with him is nothing more than our honoring the one to whom the promises were made and that releases the blessing of those promises into the individual believer's lives. But be careful that you understand whom the promises were made to. He says here to Christ. That's who, that's who received the promises. And that's important. Right, singular, and Paul points that out. The seed, not the seeds. So, so, so be careful, don't say that the people of God aren't blessed. They are, but they're blessed, at, they're blessed in the context of their union with Christ to whom singular the promise was made. The Father fulfilled the promise in Christ and me in Christ becomes a, a recipient of the blessings of that promise. Is that clear? 
I hope so. Because sometimes that can get confusing. Why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels and by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom, to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. And then he asks, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, may it never be. For if, law had been, if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. It's not contrary to it. It's just, it's just not the same as it. It's a different thing. Verse 22, and this is where I was getting to in the context of this morning. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that the reason for that is that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, not to those who are performing the law. There's no promise to you. The promise isn't made to you who are keeping the law. The promise was made to the seed and the law came in to restrain the people until the seed would arrive, accomplish his redemptive work and receive the promises and in union with him, let those promises flow out and we become the beneficiaries of those promises in our individual Christian lives. This is why when I talk about people in our generation, uh, this idea of salvation by works. This is essentially what I'm saying. I don't use the word law because we don't think we're Jews and we don't have a problem with law keeping, but we do have a problem with substituting something for Christ, right? We, we might begin with Christ. We might recognize that there's no way I'd be saved without Christ. So I better get busy now once I've been saved and please God and make sure I achieve acceptance with him. No. No, you're not going to find any more acceptance with God ex more than what you have in the person of Christ. And really a life of obedience flows or springs forth from this union with Christ. It is a part of the promise of the father to the seed and, and, and flowing out into our lives. My obedience, let me say this, my obedience is a mercy of God. It is. It's not, a, it's not a means to achieve mercy. It is a reflection of the mercy. Otherwise, if it's not coming from that source and if it's not from that promise, then it is an affront to God because I am, I am disregarding the seed to whom the promises were made and choosing rather to please him myself and gain acceptability. And I'm putting myself up against Christ and the sufferings and the merits of Jesus Christ himself. So no, it is not pleasing to God when I am working to, to achieve his acceptance. That's the difference. It is not salvation by works, nor is it sanctification by works. It is salvation by grace. We are saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. <clears throat> all three of those are true. And they are all operations of grace and the mercy of God as drawn from the fountain of Christ's precious blood. I don't know. <clears throat> I'm kind of like Paul uh, with these Galatians. I'm thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? Somebody has bewitched you. Why would you walk away from the free gift of God and receiving fully of the blessings flowing through this seed, Christ, and decide that you could do a better job yourself? Why would you do that? 
Why would people in our day do it? I've met people who I believe genuinely are born again, but who have been deceived afterwards into thinking that from that point on, their acceptance is based upon how well they perform. It is not. It is not. He goes on to say, the scripture has shut up everyone under the sin so that promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, shut off or, or blocked off from the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law in that sense has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Uh, one of the interesting things about the law, and I think it has to do with the preaching of John the Baptist even as an introductory or preparatory message to the coming of the Messiah. Remember when John said uh, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his was a baptism of repentance. And I'm convinced that John's, what John was doing was calling them to look back to the law, invest themselves, turn away. And the first thing you're going to find out when you try to turn away from your sin is that you don't have the capacity to do it fully. And there's nothing more preparatory for the coming of Christ than the realization that I can't keep the law. It is our tutor. It is pointing us to Christ. It is, our, it is holding us in in this place and in this position so that we might be primed now for when the seed would come, Christ himself. That's exactly what I think Paul is saying here. But now, verse 25 now that faith has come, faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to these Galatians. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Here's that union I just spoke of. And hath clothed yourself, that's that robe of his righteousness, with Christ and in that, in that condition or in that position, the, these distinctions that he mentions are, are not relevant in regards to your acceptance with God. It doesn't mean there are no more men and women or Jews and Gentiles. He's saying those, distinct, those, those distinctions are irrelevant now in regards to your acceptance with God. There's no more Gentile and Jew, male nor female, slave nor bond. We are all one in Christ. Your acceptance has been accomplished in the person of Christ, in your union with Christ. There's no, there's no categorizing people now in regards to their acceptance. They are all find their acceptance with God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a shouting, uh, that's a glory-filled, worthy of shouting reality there. And that's what he's speaking of. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, Abraham's got some descendants that are not heirs according to the promise. He has some, he has some descendants who are heirs according to the flesh. But, but he has, these descendants are going to be heirs according to the promise. He also has a descendant, a son called Ishmael. He is not an heir according to the promise. Uh, the promise he's just been talking about was the seed who would to come to whom the promises are made. We are made heirs through that seed, through Christ Jesus, heirs of Abraham. What a remarkable thing. Here we are, uh, Gentiles referred to as dogs by the Jews 
And here we are, an heir of Abraham. Not by your works, not by your, what you've achieved, but by the blessings and the promise made to the seed in whom you are, in whom you live. Chapter 4 begins this way. Now I say, making, having made his argument, he says, Now I say, as long as the heir that you and I, uh, robed in Christ, uh, receiving the blessings through our union with Christ, you and I, as long as we are children, we don't differ that much at all from a slave, although he, this, this one, is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers. Now, I think there's, all, there, there's a little bit of a place there, I think, in a lar- larger context that the law can be utilized there under these managers and guardians until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things. Some people, I think some translations say the rudimental, the elementary teachings, the elementary truths of the world. We were children held under bondage to those. But for verse 4, this is where we got this morning. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Remember now, the seed born of a woman Talks about his birth here. He's going to come into the world as a human being, born under the law. He's going to come subject to the same law and the same custody, as it were, as we were in. And he's going, coming to do this so that we might, uh, so that we, he might redeem the seed. He might redeem those who were under the law, who were, were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And I love verse 7 as I shared this morning. Therefore, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. There's a big difference. There is a big difference. You are no longer, Christian, a slave, not by anything that you achieved, but by the pure grace of God and the, and the calling out of you in the person of Christ and your acceptance based upon the person of Christ and the promises made to Christ. You are a recipient of all the blessings that flow in Christ. Remember in the scriptures it said all the promises of God are yes. What's the next phrase? In him. In Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. All the promises of God are not yes in your flesh, except those promising judgment and condemnation. But all the promises of God made to us are in Christ to us, yes. God will not renege on any of those because it would be to withdraw and renege on the promises he's made to his own son. So all the promises of God in Christ are yes. Wow. Yes, you are no longer a slave, Christian, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, I want to finish out uh, to verse 20. I think I... Yeah, let me finish out to verse 20. However, uh, by the way, in the context of Christmas, that's, that's what we're celebrating. When the fullness of time came. Uh, it's amazing. You've probably done these studies, but providentially... 
You couldn't have been a better time for the arrival of the Messiah. We had the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They had brought a, a general stability to the world. There were not warring tribes as much. They had brought a power and authority and everybody was kind of submissive to him. There was the Roman roads, the, the ability to travel rapidly with the gospel message. There was also, as I shared, because of the darkness and the corruption of the political class and even the religious class, there was a stirring and a yearning and an expectation that we're going to need the Messiah to get us out from under this corruption and from this darkness. So providentially all things had been unfolding down through the centuries to finally arrive at this singular point in history when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. That's what's happening. That's what we're remembering as we celebrate Christmas. Uh, I think often of the remarkable, the remarkable reality that I used this analogy one time. Uh, I love the classics painting. I'm not, I'm not one of those uh, later abstract guys. I don't personally, I do not get abstract art. Uh, it's just chaos. I, I don't find anything attractive about that at whatsoever. I don't even like cubism. You know what that is? Uh, this, just different, different art fashions that came after the Renaissance and they started experimenting and it was distorted and, and, and they would port, paint these portraits and they were in cubes. They made the whole portrait out of little cubes. And, and I see that stuff and I'm saying, I don't even want to look at it. I like realism. I like art of the masters that looks like the person is real. And I, I've made this analogy before. No matter the expertise of Rembrandt, or, or a Rembrandt, no matter the, no matter the life like the expertise and no matter how, how, how it looks like you could step into that painting and live there, Rembrandt could never be a part of the painting. His, his, his expertise could be reflected in the painting, but he couldn't get into the painting. He couldn't go walk around in the painting. And I've always used that analogy. That's exactly what God did in the incarnation. All around his creation was reflecting his glory, the glory of the master and the master designer and the creator. All around was reflecting his glory. But one day in real time in history, the artist took upon flesh and stepped into the artwork. I love, that'll make me take off running there. He, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I love it. He says, and we beheld his glory as of the only glory uh, of the glory of the only begotten son of God. The master artist laid down his brush, took upon himself flesh and walked into the master painting. And now he can look around and he can command the elements in the painting as it were. He can calm the seas and he can exercise uh, uh, his artistry as it were while he's inside his own creation. That is extraordinary. No wonder lost people don't believe that. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. But as Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says also in that same passage in John, this one who came into the world came to his own and, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them power to become children of God. Not those who were born of blood or of the will of man or any other thing, but who were born of God. John 3, 16 and 18 and following in the early chapters, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. 
That's what Paul is pushing back against here in Galatians. He's saying to these people, why are you, how have you been bewitched to move away from this? This is your life. Not, the, not this addition of things you ought to do or, or should do to continue and further your acceptance with God. You're not going to find any greater acceptance than you've already found in Christ. In fact, our great blessing is to live out now. Let that gratitude and let that life change be lived out in our lives. Let me finish with these words. Verse 8, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you, you have come to know God, or rather, uh, I love this, or rather be known of God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Why? Why are you doing this? Now that you have come to know God and rather than be known by God, why would you turn back now to the weak and beggarly elemental things that you were once captured by? He delivered you from those things. Oh, you Galatians, who has bewitched you to move back in that direction? Verse 10, you can almost hear the emotion of Paul here. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. Perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Uh, my, my translation of that was, I'm worried you missed the point. <laughs> you're observing this and this and you're all dividing up and we're saying, we're in this camp and we're in this camp and you're observing all these things and you're, and you're stacking all these laws and regulations up upon top of this glorious new birth that you've known and I'm worried about you because that's not where you began And you're going to lose sight of the very grace that's necessary for your transformation and sanctification if you keep moving away from that. I'm worried, Paul says, that maybe I've labored over you in vain. I beg of you, verse 12, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you didn't despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Why? And now you're moving away from that? What's going on with you? No wonder Paul thinks they were bewitched. He goes on to say, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to to me. So, So have I become your enemy by telling you this truth now? What happened happened to that zeal and joy and abundant life that was evident in you and your gratitude overflowing for this grace that you had received and And now you're buying into the slightest suggestion that you ought to add something to that grace. And you're buying it hook, line, and sinker. What happened? What happened? And I would say that to the Christian who has this experience of this new birth. And and there was that abundant joy and that zeal and that love and devotion. And and five years or a year into your Christian life, now you think somehow that you're finding acceptance with God or pleasing God or being raised in his evaluation because of your obedience. And and you failed yesterday and you're miserable yesterday because you completely, utterly failed. And now you don't feel acceptance with God. And what has bewitched you? What has bewitched you? 
You were never finding acceptance by those things to begin with. As I shared this morning, you and I were hopeless. And only the grace of God brought this hope to us. Once having received this hope, why are we departing from that? Let me just say this. Beware. Because I think people impose things upon us and we may even do it ourselves with noble intentions. I want to live a holy life. We can find scripture to support it. Be ye holy for, for your heavenly father is holy. Yes, there are all kinds of exhortations and imperatives towards striving for holiness. But there is a way to do that as a matter of seeking the cross and grace and, and seeing Christ and beholding him and letting that obedience and holiness and transformation happen as a fruit flowing out from our union and intimacy with Christ Jesus. You hear me quoted all the time, and it's one of the reasons it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture in 1 John 3, really 1 through 3, where he says, we don't know yet what we shall be, but we know this, when we see him, we shall be like him. And I've told you many times that verse speaks to me and enlightens me so much because it tells me that the catalyst for me being like Christ is not me working. It's me seeing, seeing, beholding Christ, drinking in the glory of Christ. And so transformational that is that my life will begin to reflect those things. My desire for right hearted obedience will begin to grow out of that, not self-righteous Gaining achievement obedience, but righteous obedience will grow out of that. And that'll go on all the days of my life. And here's the glory of Christmas to me. Because of the work of Christ, one day I'm going to be ushered into the presence of that Christ without this fleshly body, without this fleshliness as an obstacle. And I'm going to see him as he is. And you know what he says in that passage will be the result of that? Immediately I'll become like him. My transformation will be complete. Why? Because I'm seeing him without obstruction and clearly as he is. And why would we think sanctification involves any less than that in this world? It doesn't. It doesn't. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Verse 17, speaking of these who were trying to compel them now, this is a kind of a rebuke against them, but listen to what he says to them. They, they do, they eagerly seek you, but not commendably. But they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. See what's happening here? If I can add to your relationship with God some works, I shut you out from the true power of your sanctification and I get you seeking me. I'm trying to do these works, Larry, but how do I do them? How do you do them? Well, let me tell you how. I get you dependent on me to tell you how to do the works and obey, uh, right, so you can find acceptance. You see what they're doing here? Yes, they do eagerly seek you, but not commendably. They shut you out and shut, cut you off from the power source, which is the grace of God and the mercy of God for your sanctification, and they get you asking them, how is it that I can be more holy? And they are more than willing to to give you some counsel, right? And, and nine times out of 10, they, they would like to be paid handsomely for that counsel. That's exactly where they were going. Verse 18, but he says, but it is good always, it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. My children with whom I am again in labor. What, a, what imagery there. Uh, 
Such love for the church as a mother giving birth to her children. She's already given birth to them once. And she's rejoicing because they've come into the world and she's, and she's equipped them and she's, she's, she's anticipating with excitement their growth and maturity. And he says, but something's happened. I'm having labor pains all over again. It's like you've gone back into the womb. Do I have to birth you twice here? I'm feeling the, the weightiness of what's going on here. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. For I'm, I'm perplexed about you. What a way to end a chapter. It's not ending the book, but what a statement. Paul, the one carried up into the third heavens who beheld revelation so, so extraordinary that he was given a lifelong thorn lest he exalt himself. This Paul, this th great theologian and great, great knower of men is completely perplexed by why anyone would move away from grace towards this self-sufficiency of, of finding acceptance with God through their own law keeping or works in our context that is perplexing isn't it it's very perplexing uh, and let me just close with this word of testimony there have been times in my christian life where somebody come along and they and they uh, the kids get tickled because i do this little thing of sound like a fishing rod that it sounds just like a lower hit in the there's been time in my christian lives where somebody's come along and they've cast it and it's hit the water right in front of me and it looks appealing. And I've bitten. And then I found out, I find out that I'm being pulled away against my will towards something that doesn't look promising to me. And there have been times in my Christian life where somebody came along and proposed a pretty good idea about holiness and sanctification. And I felt conviction. And I thought, well, I ought to do that. Why would a why would a serious Christian not want that? And next thing you know, I'm walking along this little line, going through, finding all the instructions, listening them out, outlining all the instructions about how I can become more holy. And I'm realizing that the farther I go down that road, the less holy I'm getting. The less set apart unto God I become. And the farther away from this grace I move. And thankfully, God has been merciful to open my eyes to that numerous times in my Christian life. And I've, and I've stopped there and said, you know what? What you say is true, but you're, you're, you're imposing that upon me in the completely upside down context. You are moving me away from grace by your commendation of good works. I want to do good works. Read the book of James. In fact, if you say you have faith and don't have any, you don't have any faith. So yes, good works has a place in our lives, but we invert those things. Good works flow out of this union and relationship with Christ. They're not a means to get there. They're the result of having been brought into Christ himself. This is so huge. And to me, the reason it's in context with Christmas is because the birth of Christ was the earthly inauguration of what had been set in stone from the foundation of the world, our hope really was in Christ. And he broke into history uh, finally one day in history uh, over 2,000 years ago now and went to the cross and accomplished the work uh, that guarantees that you and I, every believer in this room, uh, I used to, you may have heard of Vance Havner. If you look him up online, uh, he's a little Asheville, a little mountain preacher 
but one of the most brilliant men I think I've ever heard preach. But he would tell the folks occasionally in a sermon, all of you who believe here, he's going to get us home. He's going to get us home. Uh, some of us may come with dirty britches and, and kicking and screaming part of the way, but he's going to get us home. And man, what a comfort that is to me, because if it's up to me, I'm going to get lost tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm going to forget the way. But we have a Lord who's going to get us home, and it all was inaugurated on Christmas. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this treasure. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 4 speaks about the treasure that is housed in earthen vessels. Lord, that is true, so true. What you have put within us by your spirit and, and by having called us to yourself is indeed a treasure. But we look around in this room and we're, as some old preacher said, we're a room full of cracked pots. But Father, in the midst of every heart dwells the glorious person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. So Father, thank you for this great, extraordinary, almost unbelievable miracle of the new birth. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are on this journey with me and I with them. Lord, I thank you for the difficult days we have and for the wonderful days we have as well. I thank you for those who have stood by for so many years and who've endured the difficulties of life in general, of church life and individual trials and uh, tests that come upon us. And Lord, through all those years, we can stand here tonight and give you praise and honor and glory for you have, you have sustained us. And Father, you have taught us much about grace and you have drawn our hearts to the Christ from whom our mercy flows. Lord, I pray in my heart and in the heart of everyone here that Jesus would be ever exalted, always being exalted in our thinking and in our hearts. Help us to continue to be centered upon him. Help us not to do as the church in Revelation was admonished. Help us not to leave our first love. Bless those who've come tonight, Father, be with each of us as we go throughout this week. Uh, Lord, open our eyes to opportunities to, to do good to others as we were speaking in the Sunday school class this morning and to testify to others of this glorious grace, especially in the occasion of the celebration of the birth of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.